You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad. Yeah. What's your favorite thing of 2020? There's going to be something good in there. Scrape the bottom of the barrel, buddy. <laughs> it's got to be something. Oh, geez. Favorite thing that happened in 2020. Well, it is a little bit political, but a change in the political environment, in the administration. <laughs> a little bit, a little <laughs> bit political. <laughs> <laughs> that, I think, is probably my, my favorite thing that happened in 2020. Yeah. I think technically it happened in 2021, so I'm not going to let you off the hook. <laughs> What's the best thing that happened in 2020? Oh, geez. <laughs> I don't know. There wasn't, there wasn't much. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I know. You didn't die. I know. I know. You started a podcast. The Dodgers won the World Series. That's the best thing. Where was I? You were hiding behind a couch away from COVID. You didn't catch the game. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, and we also started the podcast in 2020. That's what you should have said. Come on, I set it up for you, and you first had to go politics, and then you had to go baseball. Should have been easy. And you spent a little bit more time with your family, I would assume. That was great. Yeah. Not all the time, but most of the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Depends on the day. Yeah. How are the kids doing? We actually had a meeting yesterday with the school board, like a Zoom thing we're listening on. They're talking about reopening and they're going to do it in a hybrid model. It's going to be four days a week, three days a week. And they showed us photographs of where the kids are going to sit. They're going to sit like six feet apart with plexiglass around them. And it's half day and they're going to sit there for two and a half hours. And I was just like listening to this and looking at Megan. And Emerson's six, man. He's a six-year-old little dude. He's not going to sit still beyond plexiglass for two and a half hours. I don't even know how that's going to happen. Yeah. It's going to be tough. It is tough. Yeah. And they find a way, they adapt, and some days are a struggle, but... Yeah, I mean, even with their masks, right? If I don't tell them to remove their masks after we get back in the car, they'll just leave it on the whole way home. And people say it's going to freak them out. It doesn't. It doesn't at all. They get used to it so quickly. Well, and that's the thing, especially the littler kids, that's just kind of like what they know. Yeah. It is pretty crazy. But good luck with that. Hopefully that goes smoothly and... Yeah, it's a weird situation because we can actually choose to be all online which is what we would do, but then we get a new teacher. And he's already has such a cool relationship with the teacher and she's amazing. And so I don't know, it's only for two and a half months, right? Which left the school year because then it starts in March. <laughs> so it feels counterproductive, but it's important, right? Yeah. Strange times we live in. But anyway, yes, you yep. started a podcast in 2020, Chad. I'll remind you. <laughs> yes. That was the highlights of your 2020. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah. So this is the final part of the 2020 wrap up. So we're going to be covering our final three favorites of 2020 and then doing our edited summary of it. And for the listeners that's jumping in right now, I would highly recommend that you go back and listen to episode 41. That's where we started with part two and then 42. And then today is 43. So I'll kick us off this time. One of my favorites were the story about Lego, and it's episode 21, the brand building, it's legacy brick by brick. And it's partly because of, well, it's, I think it's twofold. I'm a new dad, as you know, four and six. So 
I'm just in awe with how amazing the product is. We often talk about how hard it is for a brand to market themselves away from a bad product and how easy it is for marketing to write itself when the product is good. And Lego is just amazing. Like just watching the kids play with it is just such a strong product. And if you look at the story about Lego of how they failed, they basically over-innovators. They had all these kits and colors and they just went completely overboard, which I think is a very sound lesson for any company, even if they've got a strong product. But then the story itself of Christensen, Kirk Christensen, which I think he was a consultant, right? And he came in to do an audit on the state of the business. And he gave his presentation to the board. And then he walked out of there and he called his wife and he said, you know, I'm going to lose those contracts because I just delivered really bad news. And they made him CEO. <laughs> it's such a crazy story. <laughs> Not a likely outcome, but it was amazing. Yeah, I just love that. You know, it's so smart because he clearly understood the business and he approached it from a business standpoint versus trying to sugarcoat a marketing campaign and trying to fix it. And I just love that. So let's kick it off with that today. And let's listen to episode 21, the brand building its legacy brick by brick. The Lego group started humbly in a workshop of a Danish carpenter named Ollie Kirk Christensen, who lived in 1891 to 1958. And Christensen started building wooden toys in Bulland, Denmark, in 1932. And in 1934, he named the company Lego, which comes from the Danish phrase leg got, which means play well. And in 1947, Lego started making plastic toys, including in 1949, plastic building blocks that they originally called automated binding blocks. And in January of 1958, Lego patented their design and the modern Lego brick was born. So let's talk about the growth of the modern Lego company. From the time it was founded in 1932 and for 66 years, the Lego group had never posted a loss. So very successful over a long period of time. And then in the 90s, things kind of start to shift. Competition really starts to intensify and Lego has to cut prices to remain competitive. You start seeing a lot of generic Lego competitors coming into the market that try to make their pieces even interchangeable with Lego pieces. Mm. Even if you already have a fairly extensive Lego connection, they can kind of chip away by having kind of like interoperability and compatibility with existing Lego sets. So the market gets tougher and consumer tastes seem to be moving away from Lego at the time to other flashier toys and games and gadgets. There was a lot of kind of toy innovation that was going on. This was also like during the proliferation period of comic books, Batman toys are really like taking off and Transformers and Hot Wheels. And there's all these different options. Yeah, so they attempted to diversify their products to keep up with Mattel, and they launched a clothing line, they made jewelry for kids, they started a theme park, this one around the corner from us here in SoCal, and they got into video games. Yeah, so in 1998, the company faces its first 
deficit. In 1999, Lego cuts a thousand jobs. By 2003, their sales had fallen 26% and pre-tax earnings fell by over 1.4 billion Danish crowns, which is equivalent to about 200 million US dollars at the time. And an internal report at the time stated that Lego hadn't added anything of value to its portfolio in over a decade. This story about this internal report is actually like pretty amazing. It was done by a McKinsey consultant, Jorgen Vig Knudstorp. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Oh boy, is it ever. So this internal report by Jorgen Vig Knudstorp, <laughs> he describes when he was putting the report together that he was walking in and giving such an unpopular opinion that he called his wife on the way out of the meeting of presenting the report and telling her his career was over and he probably wasn't going to have a job the next day. This is my last day. This is my last day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pretty amazing story. But the executive team was really like shocked by what was in that report that there hadn't been anything of value added to its portfolio in over a decade because they'd been prolifically doing acquisitions and diversification initiatives. And the numbers bore out exactly what Jorgen was talking about in that report. Year over year sales were down 30%. And the company was $800 million in debt. So Lego was facing essentially now the most serious financial crisis in its history and was in completely uncharted territory. Looking at Lego's ventures during these down years, it can kind of be a little bit difficult at first glance to see why they were floundering because they were being innovative. They were responding to competitive pressures and... Some of Lego's most memorable ventures happened during that time, including the start of some of their big licensing deals with franchises like Star Wars, which has been a big piece of Lego for a long time, and Harry Potter. Yeah, and also from a business standpoint, it wasn't set up correctly. The successful Star Wars packaging here and there wasn't enough to bring the business back. And the licensing expenses involved in using both Star Wars and Harry Potter brands ate completely into the revenue that they generated. Mm. Even if the lines themselves were popular, they weren't making any money from it. So in 2004, Lego hires Jorgen Vig Knudstorp as the CEO, this young guy, 35 years old, never been a CEO of a major company before. He was the consultant that wrote that report that kind of jarred them into realizing, woo, something really is wrong here. And so they hire him as the CEO. So he reorganized the company. He did an analysis of all costs and he focused on what they were good at and not how to just diversify their portfolio because it just was not working up until this point. They linked design to manufacturing costs. They shut down the video game industry. They got rid of the theme park business. The Legoland parks are now owned by, or was owned by a British company. I think initially they had 30% shares in the business. And in 2019, they acquired another 20%. And I think part of their strategic plan is to take full ownership of it again. Yep. And they refocused the business on making construction sets because ultimately that is the thing that carried them for 61 years worth of growth. They cut down the number of parts or the bricks from 13,000 down to 6,000, bringing the cost down to make the kits. 
and they simplified the colors. Maybe one of the most important things that the new CEO did is the first thing they did after the internal work of cutting the fat was to turn to the fans of the brand for the way forward. So to quote Knudstorp, quote, one of the very impactful ways for me to rediscover our ultimate purpose was talking to super users of the brand and spend days talking to them about it. That's where you learn what you're all about. And that feedback helped me to articulate the direction together with my colleagues for the future innovation of the brand. He brought hardcore fans into the actual product design process. Like we said earlier, they got away from who they were hiring these hotshot designers who didn't know anything about the brand's equity or history. Yeah, so Lego rebuilds their company by bringing it back to its core mission. And if you look at any of the videos or articles or anything where the CEO is quoted, he talks a lot about getting back to the core and focusing on the core business and using that as the basis for innovation. Yeah. So over the last decade, they were from the brink of financial catastrophe. Lego, once again, is right on top. In 2015, revenue toppled 35 billion Danish crowns. Lego was number one toy in Europe and Asia and number three in North America, where profits topped $1 billion for the first time, beating even Apple. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Crazy, right? Yeah. In 2016 alone, Lego sold over 75 billion bricks. Mm. And the Lego minifigures, the little people in their kits, now outnumber humans oh. on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I think there's so many lessons to learn from the Lego story. Just because your brand is successful and even massive doesn't mean you can ignore basic business theory, right? And we see this time and time again with big brands that they often struggle to maintain who they are and struggle to understand when they need to kind of burn things down and go back to basics. And you have to know what you're good at, right? You have to build on what you're good at first and foremost before kind of going off track and you kind of have to just remember who you are. And let your fans help find your purpose, right? Lego leaned hard into the super users and lovers of their brand. And they even started hiring them, trusting your customer to help you remember why you matter is really important and this really helped them, but it's also very hard to do. A lot of brands are very hesitant of handing over their brand equity to their users. But for something like Lego, it's definitely something that helped them and was a very smart move. That's just good stuff, right? I mean, I just love that story. Yeah, it's such an inspirational story in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what is your final pick of 2020? Well, this one is a pick for maybe a little bit of a different reason. I wouldn't necessarily say that this is one of my favorite episodes, but I think it's one of those episodes we just kind of have to put into the mix because it's kind of blocking and tackling. It's just one of the greatest, one of the most instructive comebacks of all time, and that is Old Spice. Absolutely. The title of the episode says it all, the most successful rebranding of all time. Yep. So I think a lot of people are very familiar with the story about Isaiah Mustafa and the reboot with Old Spice, but there's just so many nuggets and lessons here that we just thought we had to 
include it? There's a reason why it was successful, right? Yes, exactly. And those reasons are so instructive. So let's take a listen right now to episode 23, the most successful rebranding of all time. In the early 1900s, a man named William Lightfoot Schultz starts a company called, unsurprisingly, the Lightfoot Schultz Company. They made shaving soap out of a factory in Hoboken, New Jersey. And in 1919, thinking he was making a good business deal, Schultz sold part of the company to the American Razor Blade Company. So shaving soap and razor blades together. Pretty good idea. Yeah, not bad. So just about 15 years later, Schultz was forced out of the company that he had started. He sold control to the American Razor Blade Company and left. With the money he made from the sale, he decides to start a new business. He stays with what he knows, right? Making fragranced soaps, toiletries, at this point having the soaps primarily for women. The fragrances he used are based on actually a jug that his mother had in her house. It was heavily scented with rose petals, clove, and potpourri. And she used the scented jug to deodorize the home, to freshen the air, much like the air fresheners we use today. And she referred to these as her Old Spice jugs. Hence the name Old Spice. Aha! (laughs) Yeah, in 1937, he released his first products, a woman scented called Early American Old Spice. And in 1938, he saw the need to productize for men and he released his first Old Spice product to the male consumer. Old Spice was a massive success. And his products for men were so successful, they stopped making women's fragrances altogether in 1939. Old Spice focused on shaving creams and aftershave lotions as well. And during this time, we were right in the middle of World War II. Mm. Old Spice became a symbol of American patriotism as soldiers carried their little porcelain bottles across the borders into the world during the wartime. Schultz leaned into the traveling wanderlust image and he used sailing ships as his brand to make people feel really patriotic. And the Old Spice brand did well after World War II as well, way into the 1940s. But Schultz passed away in 1950, and he left the business to his son, George, who took over during this time. And after a few years, without his father's keen business sense to guide him, the business started to decline. As often happens when a brand is so strongly identified with a particular generation, The audience ages, right? And the product's popularity wanes. That's exactly what happened to PBR too, right? Yeah. Younger people and there aren't a next wave of consumers waiting in the flanks. (laughs) Right. That's exactly what happened here too. Right, exactly. It was very strongly anchored, no pun intended, to this kind of Navy wartime veteran type of group. So the glory days of the brand are kind of like past at this point. The younger generation thinks of Old Spice as a brand for their grandfathers, a scent for old people. Yeah. Even the name (laughs) is a little too on the nose for the reputation that it's developing, (laughs) right? Old (laughs) Spice. 
<laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So there's just nothing current, nothing attractive about the brand at this point in time. Then it's just withering away. So in 1990, Cincinnati-based Procter & Gamble bought what was left of the brand for $300 million. The press release stated that P&G liked the men's toiletries market and felt the acquisition gave them a strong foothold in the male toiletries market worldwide. P&G had a vision for the brand. They were looking to get into the male market and P&G doesn't do anything small. It's just go big or go home kind of a thing. So P&G's chairman and CEO at the time, Edwin Arts said he believed Old Spice had the quality and reputation to be a major worldwide brand. But first, they had to get past the perception of Old Spice as their grandpa's brand. And here's, I think, the, for me, I think the really instructive piece for marketers. It's how do you actually change perceptions that are so strongly embedded? Yeah, so P&G had a few different strategies that they employed. Rather than targeting adult men, they went after tweens or tweeners. We had yet to declare loyalty to the brand. Mm. The timing was just horrendous. In 2002, Axe Body Spray launched in the US and basically dominated the market that P&G was hoping to tap into. Axe was everywhere and they had a very, very cunning marketing campaign, advertising campaign that just really resonated with the same audience that PNG was trying to convert. And Old Spice still smelled like your grandpa at this point. So in 2010, they identified a key insight that 60% of men body wash are purchased by women, right? Because they go to the store and they buy stuff for their husbands or their boyfriends and so on. So the Old Spice team led by brand manager, James Moorhead, really keyed into this fact. And they also emphasized the importance of humor in reaching across gender lines, right? They're not gonna have a X type of campaign marketed to a woman because it'll just annoy them and frustrate them and it's just inappropriate for that matter. Right. Moorhead said categories like deodorant and body washes tend to be what we call low involvement. So humor is a great way to spark interest and create a deeper connection with a brand. The combination of insights led to one of the most iconic campaigns in recent memory. And let's play this quick ad and then I'm sure everybody would recognize it. Hello, ladies. Look at your man. Now back to me. Now back at your man. Now back to me. Sadly, he isn't me. But if he stopped using ladies' scented body wash and switched to Old Spice, he could smell like he's me. Look down. Back up. Where are you? You're on a boat with the man your man could smell like. What's in your hand? Back at me. I have it. It's an oyster with two tickets to that thing you love. Look again. The tickets are now diamonds. Anything is possible when your man smells like Old Spice and not a lady. I'm on a horse. <laughs> That's just awesome. I totally remember when that came out. Yeah. Like literally emailing links to like yeah. buddies in the office and going, oh my gosh, did you see this? This Works is freaking really amazing. Well. The fact that you did that, it, it appealed to women and to men. So Moorhead noted that they knew that a quarter of the brand's fans on Facebook were female. So the ad campaign empowered those women to choose Old Spice, not because it's what their man would want, but because it's what they want mm -hmm. their man to smell like. And according to the promise of the campaign, to be like. Mm. So the combination of humor and creativity 
and speaking directly to the female audience without alienating the actual users of the product just resonated in a way that I think nobody really expected. Old Spice also became the number one all-time most viewed and number two most subscribed brand channels on all of YouTube from this campaign. <laughs> so yeah, it, it was successful. Uh, just a little bit. Crazy, right? <laughs> Amazing. This is like the definition or the textbook example of viral video and viral marketing. I mean, there's no way they could have even predicted how successful it could have been. As with all things like this, the fever passed. It's impossible to sustain this kind of buzz ongoing. But one thing that Old Spice did through this, they completely changed their perception and almost overnight opened up an entire new audience. There's a lot of things that we can learn from this. And perhaps it is that they didn't succeed the first time around and they actually changed their strategy. You know, they're going after the tweens initially and then they decided it's not working and they looked at the data and they came up with a different strategy. We've seen so many times in the show that a lot of brands that are invested in their strategy just double down and then they exponentially amplify their mistakes. And I think that's something that Procter & Gamble does really well. They can pivot really fast and they did that right here. They didn't just keep on trying, they kept on digging into the data to find new insights that would spark a new fire right. that led to this. And I think there's a lot to be said in that. As marketers, we tend to get hung up on specific pieces of data that tells mm. our story. Mm. Yeah. Because <laughs> you can look at a lot of information. But I think taking a step back and going back to the drawing board when it's appropriate, when something's not working is very hard but also very important sometime. And then finally, for me, the insight that women are making the purchases for men was really key here. And they didn't just find the data. I think a lot of brands would be scared to tap into that, but they really acted on it. They created a very, very smart, like we just listened, funny campaign that spoke to women about what they wanted their man to be. And that is... Just wicked smart. Yeah, and to your point about going back and being willing to relook at things that aren't working and to keep trying. Yeah, that one's a classic. Absolutely, and if you haven't already, go to their YouTube channel and watch all the outtakes with him. He is hilarious. It's <laughs> really good stuff. Yeah, so I'll wrap it up then. The final episode for me for 2020 was episode 27, the brand that raced with nostalgia, and that's Converse. Mm. And it's not really a brand that I'm very familiar with growing up in Africa. I mean, I know Converse. I've never owned a pair of Converse. So I don't have any inherent like brand infinity towards it. But the aspect that I like about the story is about Marcus Mills, which was the factory manager of Converse that pitched and worked his way up to run the company. And for me as an immigrant in America that landed here with literally a bag that I still have with all my earthly possessions <laughs> 17 years ago in this country that it just, it has all the opportunity to make it what you want to make it. And so for me, I've just got like a personal connotation 
with the story. And I, th I just think he was really smart. And America is a platform where you can really achieve really cool things if you really put your heart and your sweat into it. So that's why I like the story. Let's listen to that now. Episode 27, the brand that raced with nostalgia. Marquise Mills Converse was a factory manager for a footwear manufacturing company. So we're going to talk about Converse, I'm assuming. <laughs> we're going to talk about Converse. Marquise Mills Converse had dreams of being more than just a manager. So in 1908, he opened the Converse Rubber Shoe Factory in Maiden, Massachusetts. And originally, Converse made winterized rubber footwear for men, women, and children. And then in 1915, Converse branched out, recognizing a need for durable basketball shoes for mm. this new and up-and-coming growing sport. And so he started making athletic footwear. In 1917, they started manufacturing the shoe for which they would forever be known. But the Converse all-star basketball shoe didn't hit the ground running, so to speak. It was really a salesman from a rural Indiana town who helped turn this simple canvas shoe into an icon. Yeah, so let's enter Chuck Taylor. <laughs> Chuck Hollis Taylor was born in rural Indiana in 1901. And in 1919, he started his career as a semi-professional basketball player. In 1923, Chuck walked into a Converse sales office in Chicago complaining about how sore his feet was. And he said that he had some ideas of how to make their shoes better. I would love to have seen that, right? This dude just walking in and... <laughs> Random guy. Hey, I, I, I've got an idea, yeah. <laughs> One thing led to another, and this semi-pro basketball player was eventually hired as a salesman for the Converse Rubber Shoe Company. And then within a year of Taylor's arrival, the company adopted the salesperson's suggestions such as enhanced flexibility, better support, and the iconic star-shaped logo patch on the mm. ankle, which he believed would protect players' ankle bones. It wasn't just for branding. And Chuck Taylor becomes more than just a salesman. He becomes the original brand ambassador. Crazy. <laughs> right. Taylor made his living as a salesman by traveling across the country, conducting all kinds of basketball clinics and then using those to sell shoes. And one of Taylor's promotional tools was the annual Converse Basketball Yearbook, which he developed in 1922. It commemorated the best players, trainers, teams, and moments of the sport and provided really good publicity for Taylor's clinics and the Converse all-star basketball shoes. Chuck really just became Converse shoes. The Converse all-star was Chuck's baby. In 1932, in recognition for all he'd done for the brand and the Converse company, Marquise Converse put Chuck Taylor's signature on the all-star patch and the classic Chuck Taylor all-star shoe was born. And today, the iconic Converse All-Star is widely known by a second name, Chucks. Converse had become the standard among high school, collegiate, and professional basketball players. They pretty much all wore Converse. In the 60s, Converse had about 70 to 80% of the basketball shoe market, wow. with Converse Chuck Taylor All-Stars being worn by 90% of professional basketball wow. players. 
Converse All-Stars were the official basketball shoe of the Olympic Games from 1936 until 1968. And due to the success of All-Stars, the company began to expand and open more factories and they were just dominating. But competition was coming. During the 1970s, the competition heated up and the game of basketball was really changing. Players were moving to more exciting fast break style of the game as compared to a slower, more pass and shoot style of the 20th century. And along with these changes in the game came the need for the shoe to provide more support and better protection. And throughout the 70s and the 80s, a flood of new brands came into the market, such as Puma, Adidas, Nike, and Reebok. Mm. Yeah, so their ubiquitous presence in the NBA was starting to slip as many athletes switched to shoes with leather uppers, wider and harder rubber soles. Shoe technology was getting better. So despite their huge marketing budget, the power of their NBA stars, and Converse actually had a lot of really big stars on their payroll, including Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Dr. J, and Isaiah Thomas, Converse just couldn't keep up. The last person to wear all-stars in the NBA was Mickey Johnson playing for the Nets during the 85-86 season. Gosh, is that real today? Nobody's won. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's all Nike. So by 2000, Converse had repeatedly slipped into receivership. They had debt piling up on an annual basis. And on January 22nd, 2001, Converse files for bankruptcy. Mm. In March of that year, Converse's last manufacturing plants in the U.S. shut down and production fully moved overseas. And in April 2001, Footwear Acquisitions and other industry partners bought the brand from bankruptcy. So the era of Converse was over. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to part two, the rebirth. Aha. In July 2003, Nike bought Converse for $309 million. And this is a extremely small sum of money for a once iconic brand. So Converse dropped its original kind of all-American, backward-looking historical message in favor of an image that would appeal to millennials, individuality and independence. Their 2008 connectivity campaign played up the brand's countercultural appeal. It featured images of rebellious icons of past decades, including Sid Vicious, Janis Joplin, James Dean, and Billy Joe Armstrong. Some big names. <laughs> yeah. So the campaign extended globally into 75 countries. Wow. Each customized with area-specific celebrities. The connectivity campaign helped the brand post a 29% increase in year-over-year -year revenue. And Converse CMO Jeff Cottrell said in an interview with Adweek, quote, our whole mission is to inspire originality and to be an advocate and catalyst for creativity. The basic canvas sneaker was turning to a designer's canvas. Some of these Converse were designed by professionals like John Varvatos. Others were designed by customers. In 2015, Converse launched its Made by You campaign. The campaign is self-described as, quote, a global celebration highlighting Converse Chuck Taylor All-Star and the only sneaker defined by those who wear them. That's according to a press release on Nike.com. Mm -hmm. Portraits from international icons such as Andy Warhol, Futura, 
Jefferson Hack, Kate Lamp here, Glenn O'Brien, who are featured alongside portraits of everyday Chuck Taylor customers. The campaign was in stores online, on social media, and exhibits in New York, London, Beijing, and in Mexico City. It's a pretty big deal. Jeez, yeah, that's a huge exhibition. So the campaign sought to, quote, highlight the unique creative spirit of local communities and subcultures with hyper-local portrait exhibitions celebrating the diversity of self-expression inherent in cultural neighborhoods throughout the world. Whether they are hand-painted, covered in mud, or worn out with holes, each Chuck Taylor all-star portrait tells a deeply personal story of the transformation from a white, black, red, or navy sneaker into a remarkable piece of art. So appealing to the individual and embracing these various subcultures really opened Converse up to a wider market than simply being an athletic shoe. It was now being worn by punk rockers yeah. and creators. Like and, a cultural icon, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it became this kind of stylistic icon that young kids wanted to wear to school and they wanted to have their stylish version of their chucks. And in fact, even now... Today, we see that continuing. That's one of the most popular things for my daughter in her elementary school right now. Converse. Yeah. That's literally the only branded piece of clothing or other stylistic kind of fashion name brand kind of thing that my 11-year-old daughter has ever asked for yet. Wow. Is Chuck's. There's a lot that we can learn from this entire story. Just because you're at the top, it doesn't mean you can afford to ignore a changing market. We've seen that over and over again, that when shifts come, they come fast, they Mm -hmm. come really hard. And one day Converse was at the top and like literally the next, they were this has been. And so you have to continue innovating. You can't ever stop innovating even if you're the greatest shoe brand in the world and even a heritage brand can't afford to focus entirely on the past. So the CMO, Jeff Cottrell, has this great quote from when Converse was getting ready to celebrate its 100th anniversary. And he said, quote, we had a focus group. I'll never forget this. The moderator says to one of the kids in the room, did you know that Converse was 100? And the kids are like, yes, cool. And then the moderator continues, they're 100 years old. That's amazing. And the kid's like, yeah, cool, whatever. The moderator goes off to something else. He comes back and says, I'd like to circle back one more time. Converse is 100 years old. That's pretty cool. The kid looks at the moderator and says, you keep telling me how old you are. I'm going to think you're old. It was like I got hit by a bolt of lightning. At that moment, behind the glass, I still get goosebumps thinking about that moment. That moment made us turn and go into a new direction and talk about celebrating the next hundred years of Converse, Mm. not the last hundred years of Converse. Yeah, that was another good one as well. I love the story around Chuck Taylor and similar to Marcus Mills, just the fact that he was able to from such a unexpected place of being a salesman yeah. for this company becomes the face of the company and the face of not only basketball shoes, but footwear style for generations. It really is just so amazing. During a very, very, very contentious period, right? Yeah. Well, I suppose we're still in a contentious period. We haven't really- <laughs> 
over the course of a few contentious periods. Unfortunately, we haven't left the contentious period. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> back then it was even, well, I don't know if it was, was worse than now, but you know what I mean. Yes. Different day, different problems, but definitely challenging times. And maybe that's just a little bit of the way that life is. Yeah. Well, this has been fun, right? Like looking back of 2020, and I already look forward to doing next year this time, 2021, where we'll be having over 100 episodes to pull from. It's crazy. Mm, Yeah. Very excited to get into this year's episodes. And I think we're going to have a lot of really interesting stories coming down the pipeline. Uh, We've been spending a lot of time with our team on research into what these next topics will be. So we hope you're excited. We're excited. We're ready to get after it. Chad's mom's excited. (laughs) We're all excited. (laughs) The whole neighborhood. It's going to be good. Nice. Well, with that, we'll speak to you guys next week. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.